happy Sabbath, everyone. And um, I am just privileged to get to share these words. And I am a little concerned because of all the intensity of the things that have happened this week. And yet at the same time, I want you to know that God, six months ago, I started reading the writings of Martin Luther King Jr., not knowing any of this was about to come upon us. And God has convicted me. And then when they gave me this particular piece of uh, scripture that was mine, I thought, how does this even fit? And the more I read, I realized how perfectly timed God works and how he has brought me through all the different things just for this moment. So I, I thank him and I praise him. And I ask that you pray as, um, as, we, as I speak and as this is heard, because I'm concerned that I might mess it up somehow, that somehow I will offend somebody or not finish something and uh, it will come out not the way I meant it. So uh, if it does, just send me a little note <laughs> and I'll get it and read it. And, um, but I also uh, just wanted you to know that racism and, and this thing has been in my life for a very long time. And as a young teenager, I got to uh, experience the race riots in Washington, D.C., and it has affected me, and I have still have bruises in my soul because of the things I saw, because of the things uh, we went through. So I'm going to start with prayer and uh, ask that you join me. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are merciful to us. I am thankful that you make every effort to turn the purpose and the intentions of the heart of men. If you did not, we would be so lost. And I pray that as, we, I, as I had this opportunity to speak, that I would glorify you. I pray that you be in my heart, in my mind, and that you put the words one in front of the other that I am to say. I ask you, Father, that you would pour out your spirit on our church in this hour, on our family, on the Christians in this hour, that you would help us to turn this tragedy into something very powerful and life-changing. I thank you, Father, for this opportunity. Now, amen. Uh, I'm saving my fun story for the middle of my sermon because I want to dig right into the scriptures. And we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 6. This is the story of the stoning of Stephen. And I want to start at the end. I'm just going to paraphrase it. And I'm going to ask you, because this, is, this piece of story is so important for today. Stephen has been dragged out to 
the outer parts of town and he is stripped down and he is stoned. And in that group of people around him is Saul. And Saul, who later becomes Paul, is sitting in that group and he is watching as these men hurl rocks at Stephen. And Stephen starts looking up and the heavens open up and he sees God. He sees heaven. Meanwhile, Saul, who's on this side, is standing there holding the coats and the robes. And I'm assuming it's because he, they didn't want to get any dirt or blood on them, which is interesting. And I ask myself about this story because I find that we are in all the people and all the stories of the Bible. And we are all the different characters at different times. But this one is intense because I asked myself, this week, where was I in this story? Was I the man in the pit looking up to heaven, telling the truth? Was I the man throwing the rocks? Or was I just Saul standing on the side, guarding the coats, not really involved, just watching? And so as you think of this story, and I'm going to go back to the beginning where we find Stephen and how he came to be in the place he was in. So in Acts chapter 6, if you will read with me, I want to talk, we're going to talk about how Stephen got involved. Acts 6 verse 1. There it is. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together, and he said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the whole group. And then they went on and they choose these seven men. But I want you to know that this very story starts with racism. This very story starts with two different groups of Christians. Those that were from Greece that had a Hellenistic, they called it a bend or a little bit of that in their philosophy and theology. And then you had these Hebrew Jews. And they had come together. One group was far more liberal than the other. But somehow, before this chapter, they all got along. Everybody brought their things, and they laid them down before God, and they said, we're going to share everything we have. And it was going along pretty good. And I think what happened at this point, because at this point, they were 
5,000 people were being baptized and 3,000. I mean, the amount of people that were coming to Christ at that moment was huge. And so now all of a sudden, they start having all this food. And Satan knew that if he didn't do something to stop this movement, it was going to circle the world. And the one thing he could do was to go back into habitual thoughts. And by that I mean, here were these societies, and these, they, they, they didn't like each other, they fought with each other, they disagreed with each other, and they had laid it down, but then there comes a moment, oh, we're being neglected, and it begins. Those old habits of thought begin, and they begin to complain, and it starts, us versus them. And in the beginning, always these things start battles. So they decide that they're going to go, and they're going to pick seven men. Now, this is interesting to me, because they're picking seven men to work in the kitchen ministry, basically. And yet those men had to have very specific, just all through the history of the Bible, we have these choosing of men, whether it was under Moses or under David. And in the history, there is a long list of what you had to have in order to be qualified to be with this group of, to be the servants that waited on the tables. They had to be men that possessed dignity. They had to have, be, have sound judgment. They had to have experience. They had to judge rightly between every man, whether it was your brother or a stranger. Those are all from Deuteronomy and from the life of Moses. And they even talked about, uh, Jethro talks about how they not only had to be able men, such that feared the God, men of truth, but men who hated covetousness. That's a very important detail. These were men who in no way, shape, or form wanted anything that belonged to anybody else. They were men whose heart was content with what God had given them. They were above um, above petty jealousy. It says um, for David, he wanted valiant men, men who kept and would seek and keep the word of God. He wanted mighty men, men who believed in the commandments of God. And when they found these people, he said to them, the Lord has chosen you. Be strong. So we have this long list, but when we get down to even um, in this piece, it goes on to talk about they couldn't be gossips. They couldn't, oh, the list from the New Testament was they were to be blameless. They were to not be self-willed. They were not to soon anger. They were not given to wine. They uh, were not given to filthy lucre. They were lovers of hospitality. It's funny because if you think that hospitality and social taking care of the needs of others is not part of our mission and message, it all runs together. 
This is why they were so successful in the early church, is it, it was you, the person that was chosen to wait on tables had to be as qualified in preaching the gospel as did the men who were on the street. These were, these were very intense people. They had to be just and holy and temperate and holding fast the faithful word of God. Um, so, so you have this picture where he, he, he's looking for these people. And we'll go back in, in uh, Acts 6 and verse 5. The proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip. Oh, and I, I don't want to mispronounce these. Some of them are pretty interesting. I meant to ask Sergio if he knew how to pronounce them a little bit better, but these seven men, and a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. So they were ordained to hand out food and wait on tables. This ministry that, um, yeah, the world doesn't look so great on it, but it was very important to the early church. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples of Jerusalem increased rapidly, and the large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power and great wonders and miraculous signs among the people, out, uh, Opposition rose, arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of freed men, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene, and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Sicilia. I can't say it. I'm sorry. I'm nervous. <laughs> I practiced it all, and I still forgot it when I said it. Anyway, in Asia, these men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up to his wisdom or the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some of the men to say, we have heard Stephen sp speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For, he, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. When I look at this piece of scripture, how unique it is, because you have this group of people who come and decide because they're so intelligent that they're going to put this guy in his place, and they start to argue with him, and they cannot argue with him. And as he's speaking, he is speaking the truth that he's actually seen. He knows that Jesus is alive, and it's through his countenance they're looking at him. I don't know if I was in an argument with my husband and his face lit up, how I would feel about whether I would continue in the argument or not. But here they are, and they're fighting with him. And when that didn't work, they pay. They pay somebody to lie about him. They tell lies about him. 
And then they do something they should never have done, is that they actually decide they're so angry because he starts to speak. And when he speaks, he tells the whole story of, of Abraham. And Mo it tells the story of the people of God. And he, he begins to speak, but they are so angry at this point because he is telling the truth. And he is standing on truth. Now we look around, and, and I look as the issues of this week have come upon us, and I say, the church should be the one place that there is no racism. We don't get to go to two different heavens, or three or four different heavens. We all get to go to heaven and stand before Christ. And we think about colors on the outside. In heaven, we are turned inside out. Who you are on the inside is who your color is. Who you are in the deepness of your soul. And as I began to, in January, study, I was studying and asking, God, how do we survive these things? We were just really being hit by the viruses. And I hadn't gotten over all the koalas and the kangaroos being burned to death and Australia, that was so intense, all of the things that were happening around the world, and now we had this world virus. And I said, Lord, how do we stand in this hour? And I began to read about the life of Martin Luther King Jr. And it was so inspiring to me, because here was a man, you think, oh, he just rose up, and you read his writings, and you listen to his speech, and they're so powerful. But the things that happened to him were as powerful and as scary as ever. And so uh, he, he talks about how, first of all, J. Edgar Hoover had a vendetta again, against him and came after him again and again. He went to the South, and he was beaten and arrested over and over and over. And he talked about how much he was tired of being hit by nightsticks and being pummeled and and he talked about how at that point he had people um, that wanted him to come and and reap vengeance on the white uh, government that was there on the police on the mayors that and that, that were doing leading these things and he said that he knew that wasn't the right way to go that he had to he had to look upon Jesus and that it was not about taking one tyranny and replacing it with a whole different tyranny. But instead, he was saying, I am worried about the bodies of black men and women, but I am worried about the souls of white people. And he began to, he got tired because at one point he got a letter. And I never knew about this, but he was sent a letter in which it said to him, we know about your affairs that you're having, you're cheating. And you need to kill yourself within the next seven days. If you do not, we're going to blow up your house with your wife and children. And he, at that point, um, after seeing so many of his friends um, beaten, there was a, a woman named Fanny. I forgot her last name, but 
she was a woman who was a child of 20 children of shareholders and, I mean, sharecroppers, and she could sing, and she had come to volunteer to register voters, and they had beat her in such a way that she died. And he was beginning to think, is this worth it? Is this the right way? Is this what we're supposed to be doing? And then, in the view of his own sin, he sat down at his kitchen table, and he said, God, I am weak. I don't have a right to stand up for you. My own sins have disqualified me. And he wanted to leave and just go and live a peaceful life and let somebody else come and do this. Let somebody else stand up against what's wrong. He talks about when he's at this table that he's praying to God. And he says, I am so weak, God, and my heart is so weak that I don't know if I can continue. And he said, at that point, God tells him, and I am paraphrasing, I somehow marked the wrong spot. And he said, God tells him, uh, Martin, stand up for what's right. Do the right thing. Tell the truth. And I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. I will never leave you. Over and over, I will never leave you. And at that moment, despite all the things where he didn't even sometimes know what he was supposed to preach against, would he stand against social injustice or poverty? He, you know, he thought that once all the white pastors in that area could see what was being done to the children and the people around him, that they would rise up and come and fight with him. And they didn't. And he said, there was just disappointment upon disappointment. And you realize, at first he thought, I'm alone. And he said, after that night at the table, he decided that he was going to preach the truth as hard as he possibly could. And every time he was arrested, and one of his fellow, a pastor um, that was with him, he was also arrested, and he, when he was arrested, the two of them had gone across the county line, and they had been tricked to go and help somebody who had been arrested, and once they got hold of the two of them, Preston, and once they got hold of the two of them, they put him in prison for a month because they had come across the county line, and I'm not even sure that's illegal, but they did horrendous things and he at moments wanted he said why are we doing we're nuts and he said but he kept coming back to hearing i will never leave you the tr the lies will not live forever lies will die and the truth will win and he began to say we are fighting on a battleground of men's hearts and he said it is the segregation in the heart it is the heart that does not know God this is where I battle this is what we're fighting for that's huge and as I look across all the things that are happening to us we need that clarity that the battleground is not other people or 
political difference. The battleground is for the hearts of men. And we are beginning to have our hearts seen, and that does not feel good. And when somebody shows us when we are wrong, I want to take them out and put them in the pit and stone. I don't want to know. But God is showing us. And Brother Terrence, uh, he really touched my heart. He, he, um, he said something that has really stuck with me, is that you have to be, he's black everywhere he goes. All the time, his face, his color comes before people knowing who he is. And he said, but at church, you think, well, people know me and love me. He says, but even here, there has been prejudice. I mean, it has affected in so many pieces and parts, even in my life. And it's so hard to not, to even see it. I, I experienced, I had an experience, and it's nothing compared to what's happened this week. But I'll never forget, my girlfriend and I were, decided we were bored, and we were going to go get some hair dye and color our hair. And uh, we're riding down the road. It was rainy night, and we passed by this person at uh, the bus stop at the University of Virginia. And... As I passed, I said, you know, that's really weird. I said, that guy was laying on the ground, sleeping in the middle of the rain. I said, don't you think that's kind of weird? And she's like, yeah. So let's go around the block and see if he's still there. So we go around the block, and sure enough, he's still there, and he's very splayed out. And we were like, oh, we better find out what this is, you know? So we went up a little ways. He was kind of in the middle of nowhere. There was no place to park around him. So we went up, and there was an older couple that was there, too, and they said they were going to go call an ambulance. And so we get to this young man, and his arms are, like, twisted around, and he was laying, his eyes were wide open, but he was clearly unconscious. And it kind of scared me, and I told my friend, I said, hey, check and see if he has a pulse. And she goes, wait a minute, you're the one that's studying medicine. You, you see if he has a pulse. And I said, yeah, but you're the one who's studying literature, and you're going to write about it, so you see if he has a pulse. And sure enough, we went down, and he, he was alive, but he clearly something was very wrong as a young man. And uh, police came by with their windows down, and I started yelling, help, help, help. And, and I even, I, so I thought they wouldn't even slow down. And I thought, oh, my goodness. And so I yelled, rape, rape, thinking that might get their attention. I'm just glad there wasn't any rape involved because they didn't stop for it. Finally, about 10 minutes later, they had circled around, and they came to where we are. And they picked up this young man. He was a young um, black man. And they began to say, we know what his problem is. And they began to push him back and forth between the two of them. And my friend and I were really uncomfortable with what was happening. And I said, well, I think he's really sick. Maybe you should put him in the squad car and take him to the hospital. Well, if he's sick, I don't want him in my car. That was the response. And uh, my friend said, maybe we should check for an ID or something. And he was like, we know what's wrong with him. We'll just take him down and let him sleep it off for the night. And he said, you two can leave. And they got real nasty with us. And we were concerned that once we left, we didn't know what was going to happen. About that time, there was a group 
of um, black students that were coming out of University of Virginia. And they saw what was happening and somehow very quickly figured it out. And they uh, yelled, hey, what are you doing? That's my cousin. And I was pretty sure he'd never seen him before, but he knew what to say. And he said, what's going on with him? You know, like this. And because it was a potential family member, they laid him back down. And somehow about that time, the ambulance from the two older people we had met arrived. And they put him in the ambulance. And the next day, I found out that he was not only an engineering student from the University of Virginia, but he was a diabetic. And he wasn't drunk. He wasn't high. But because he was black, they assumed those things. And I remember it really affected me. I tried to get his name. I tried to find out more about him to let him know what had happened. But um, they wouldn't give us the information. And it affected me very different that I thought, man, I, I, this is just an everyday incident. But these things, if we allow them here, especially in the church, will keep the spirit of God from using us. And I had to ask myself and challenge myself. You know, Terrence challenged me is how do I really treat my brothers and sisters of all backgrounds within our church, within our church family? Um, this was so important in this early part of the book of Acts that they knew the Holy Spirit would not accompany them if there was disunity among them. That's powerful. They knew that the angels of God would not go before them if there was disunity. And so they sought to immediately deal with the issue and they dealt with it in such a way that even in the outer churches, if there was a fight among the church members, they were not allowed to fight about it. They would call together people from other churches of wisdom, and they would sit down and debate these things and talk about and talk them out. And that is why they were so powerful. They had a huge commission. You have to realize religion in the world had changed forever when Jesus died. Religion in the world was going to be, God was a living God. He was real. And you have to have that one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. All these other things make no difference. Stephen stands up and Stephen starts pouring out this message and he says to them, and there isn't enough time to read because it's a long piece of scripture, but he talks about how the people of God rejected Moses. He talks about how the people of God hardened their hearts over and over, and they would tell him, you know, this is God is sending this prophet to you. He is trying to help you and save you. And they were like, eh, you know, here's Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. What are they doing? Hey, we don't know if he'll ever come back. We're just going to build us some. And they 
were so happy with the work of their own hands. They created their own little God. You know what that is? Greed. Greed is when you love the things that you produce with your own hand, where you love and you want it and you get it near you. So here's this picture where he said over and over, and then Stephen just turns to the people around him and said, you, you are a stiff-necked people. And this is at the end of chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? He is speaking this to the people of God. This is not to the world. This is to the people of God. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and you have murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed. When they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witness laid their clothes at the feet of the young man Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. When this piece of scripture is so amazing. And he said, here he is looking up into heaven. And when I looked into Martin Luther, I, remember, I realized at one point after he'd been at that kitchen table, he said, you cannot change, you can make a law and people cannot lynch, but he said, you can't make them love and forgive. Only God can do that. That's the battleground of the heart he talks about. And recognizing that these people that were doing these horrific things to him would have to face Christ and would be held accountable for everything they did. We all will face Christ and be accountable for what we did. And I want to close, um, you know, with this uh, crazy thing that happened to me a while back. It was during the summer, and I wanted to work down in Ocean City, Maryland, in Rehoboth. And you had to go in the middle of the... Uh, winter if you wanted a summer job in a really good place. So my girlfriend and I, same girlfriend, <laughs> um, 
we went down, we got a room, and we were going from place to place in these fancy, fancy, fancy restaurants, and we were trying to get jobs and things like that. And I decided that I would get up real early in the morning and watch the sun come up and just pray. And so I'm on this beach in Maryland all by myself, have been coming there for, you know, 23, 24 years of my life every summer with my grandmother. And here I am on this beach alone, and I'm praying, and it's freezing, and uh, the waves are choppy. And as I'm praying, all of a sudden I look out, and I see a fin coming through the water. And I stand up, and I just started yelling, shark! It's a shark! I've been coming here for 25 years. And you have to understand, at the end of the boardwalk is a big, gigantic stuffed, I don't know what you call it when it's a fish, but he was, he's, and he's the biggest shark they ever caught there, and that was always there, and so as a kid, I was always terrified. There were sharks in the water, but I had never seen a shark, and so I'm sitting there, and I'm going, I'm looking at this shark, and it's coming right to the shore, and I'm like, oh my goodness, it's going to get us. It's going to get me, and I backed up just in case it was going to run up on the shore, wasn't sure that how that was going to happen, but in my mind, I thought. And I started jumping up and down and screaming and yelling, it's a shark. I can't believe I see a shark. Nobody's going to believe me. I can't believe there's a shark. And then the shark fin began to get taller as it was coming through the water. And I went, oh, wow, a long-necked fin shark thingy. And then I could kind of see a circle in it. And then all of a sudden, I saw this. And I went, oh, Russian submarine! It's a Russian submarine! We're being invaded! And I'm, Russians! There's Russians! Nobody's going to believe me. There's nobody here. And as it keeps coming, I all of a sudden realize its arms are going like this. And then I go, Whoa, I do not know what this is. And it comes and it's coming. And, I, and yet I didn't run for some reason. I stood there and watched it. And as it got closer and closer, I realized it's a surfer in a complete black outfit, including a hood that came up like this that looked like a shark's fin. He was black from head to toe. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, that's kind of, I don't, I felt really stupid at that point, you know, like, well, by this time, the guy runs up on the shore, picks up his surfboard, and he walks right to me. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm going to be killed by a surfer. You know? And he walks right to me and he goes, you must be crazy. And I'm like, I haven't been tested yet, <laughs> you know. But he said, I thought there was a shark after me. And he said, I was so upset. I was trying to go as fast as I could. He said, but then when you started yelling, Russians, I didn't know what to do. I thought, can they torpedo a surfboard, you know? And he, well, I didn't know what to say. He was so, he was so mad. And he marched on past me. This is what I know. Jesus is coming. 
if you have to stand on the beach and feel like the biggest idiot, you do. You do. No, it's not right to murder people. No, it's not right to do. It is our time to stand up and say, we are no longer going to hold the coats and watch this world go round. It is our time to stand up and speak the truth. And hopefully, God will open up heaven for us. And we will see what Stephen saw. I pray that as we preach this intense, insane hour, that God will grant our souls the ability to go forward no matter what it cost us to teach and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have been chosen. Be strong. Can we pray again? Lord Jesus, help us. It is confusing. It is scary. It makes me angry, all the things that have happened. And I pray that you would help us to stand in this hour. Help us to stand for what is true and right. Give us the wisdom to know. Give us the forgiveness and the love that is needed in this hour. Help us to be willing to just stand and let evil be seen as it is that many would turn away from what is evil and wrong and give their hearts to you. Show us how to deliver the message you have put upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody. And happy Sabbath. Hope you get a chance to read the rest of the chapter 7 while you're at home on Sabbath. Um, uh, you know, some people have been asking me, when is church going to be reopening again? Hey, listen, I want to tell you, church is not closed. Church has never closed. We have been open just in a different way. We've been doing a lot of different things. We are still doing community service. We're still giving away diapers. We're still visiting people. We are still doing our Bible studies. We're still doing our services. Uh, we're still doing baptisms. Uh, we're still having people professing their faiths. God is still at work in many, many ways. And the Holy Spirit is still doing amazing things. I, too, cannot wait for the day that we can come together and have church the way we ought to be doing church, where we can hug each other and sing our hearts out and praise God. And I'm looking forward to that day. Stay tuned for that. If you want to be kept uh, in tune to when that's going to be. You know, we give out a newsletter every week. Uh, we're going to have a little thing on the side here that's going to tell you how you can leave us your email, uh, even a prayer request. We'd love to have your information so that you can have our uh, newsletter or just give us an email so that we can uh, prayer request, so we can pray for you, just or anything at all that you'd like to let us know. We'd love to know. We'd love to be able to keep you in, keep you in touch with what we're doing and to let you know what's happening with us. We're going to be doing some things this summer, even in the outdoors. We'd love to let you know about that. And uh, thank you again for joining us. We're going to continue next week uh, with the story of another one of those uh, deacons. His name was Philip. So we'll see you then. God bless you. Have an awesome day and a great weekend.